39 and a half years ago, I saw this news clip. And when I saw it, I thought that is true. I remember the date because I wrote it down October 6, 1993. And I sat in a church sanctuary and I read the source of it, the Atlantic Journal, and I thought that is so true. If you're watching on the if you're listening on the radio, this is what I saw. Too much crime, too much violence. Science is exploding with new discoveries. The political world is changing so rapidly that you're out of breath trying to keep pace with who's in and who's out. Everything is high pressure. Human nature can't endure much more. The Atlantic Journal. I would tweak a few things, maybe put in the word technology instead of science, and then uh, the word high pressure. I think I would add the word um, anxiety or angst. But it's what the source was that caught my attention, and I thought that is so true. It was the source, but it was the date of the source that hit me, June 16th, 1833, before the Civil War. This message is entitled this morning, What Has Changed and What Really Matters? We are in a seven-week series course. We're going through a book entitled Joining Jesus on Mission, the actually the author himself will be here next week, Greg Finke. So if you don't like the series, blame him, okay? But last week as we began, we tried to lay out the understanding that when we join Jesus on mission, we're joining with him. The language for that is Emmanuel language. We're not for him, but with him. And we understood that mission has a name. It's not abstract. It's not like something that goes on the back of the wall, but it, it comes with people's names. And so this morning, um, and we're going to follow this, by the way, if you didn't get a chance to take in the J-term class, uh, that's going to happen the next hour in the fellowship hall. Karen Morris does a fabulous, fabulous job. <clears throat> She's going to walk, walk it through. And it's also being covered, the same material is being covered in our, in our family journey as well, too. But Greg gives a, a great story, a great story of, uh, and he uses the language, the, the bridge has moved where the river has moved. This is an actual bridge. It's, it's over the Chakaluta Bridge in Honduras. And you may say, what happened? What goofy thing happened? Well, Tropical Storm Hurricane Mitch happened in 1998. It was a Hurricane 5, Category 5, and it happened over Honduras. Honduras is a mountainous village. And when the storm came, it actually downgraded to a Category 1 but it hovered over Honduras, which is a very mountainous area of the, of the world. And over a period of five days, there were over 75 inches of rain that came. 75 inches, that's over six feet. And so what happened was <clears throat> all that water came crashing down on the mountain and into the Chakaluta River, and basically it moved the river. Isn't that crazy? It's a Japanese company, and they say, see? The river moved, but the bridge is standing. <laughs> Isn't that great? And what Greg has done, and he'll unpack this more next week when we gather together, is he uses that as a metaphor to say that the river or the cultural culture has shifted, and the bridge, the bridge is the church, which is interesting because we are the bridge that bridges people to Christ. So my statement this morning is simply this, what has changed and what really matters. I want to invite you to find a bulletin insert, and the first thing we want to understand is what has changed, but really the idea is who really matters. 
there are some assumptions that church and attending church is, and being a part of church is what's normal, but that has sadly changed. And maybe some of you are saying, preach it, Pastor. For many reasons, Greg lists some, but um, in my observation, I could list others as well too, but I'm not going to go there. I'm just going to simply make it personal. You can think of your own family. You can think of spouse, maybe kids, your neighbors, your extended family. That church is an option, and it's great that it works for you. I, I remember I've been a pastor for over 30 years, and I remember where good programming, good worship, good preaching, people wanted to be a part of that. People would drive by a church and say, there's something really good going on there. I want to be a part of that church. And now people will drive by and say, how can I make that a part of a very, very busy life? Now, what do we do about that? Well, a couple things. One, we lament, we grieve, we weep. And we understand our culture. We understand our neighborhood. Last spring, Pastor Brian and I filled out a, uh, an assessment. I gave this to our elders on our elder retreat last week. It was called Know Your Community. It was a report done by an organization called Church Answers, Tom Rayner and the Revitalized Network. And just an opportunity to know your community. And I thought that would be really helpful. Here are some things that I found out in this assessment. 57% of our community is 42 and under. If that makes you feel old, yup. Found out that 40% of people own dogs. Didn't know that. And then it gave some numbers on our political persuasions here in town. And that we do have kind of a bell curve, gang. So what does that mean? What hasn't changed? There are certain questions that all people ask. Fifty years ago, there was a book written by Merton Strumman called The Five Cries of Youth. The Five Cries of Youth. You think they've changed? Listen to what they are. Loneliness. Family trouble. Outraged. Outrage. Closed minds. And joy. Those are five cries. When I pondered those, I thought of the master class. This, these are classes that you can take online. And one political activist said it this way. In this class, we're going to ask questions like, what does it mean to be human? What does it mean to be loved? What does it mean to be part of a community? And I thought to myself, man, those are great questions. That hasn't changed. What has changed? There's a Cleveland pastor by the name of Alistair Begg. Many of us enjoy his writings. Two years ago, he wrote an article that just came across my desk, and I thought, that is so true. It was entitled this, Welcome to Exile, and it's going to be okay. Welcome to Exile, and it's going to be okay. What did he mean by that? He gave the understanding or gave the background of being uh, of Daniel's life. And if you have a Bible near, next to you, you can turn with me to the book of Daniel. It's, um, it's on a pew Bible there. It begins in about page 758. And the background story for the book of Daniel is that Daniel was a political refugee. He lived at the time when Babylon was the superpower of that day. And the way that Babylon treated countries that they took over was they would strip the country of its riches. They would first start with the resources and the natural resources, and you pick that up in Daniel chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. 
they would strip the resources and take all of the wealth. But then also what they did was they would take the people too. But not just any people. They would take the sharpest and the brightest and the most articulate. And yes, the handsome ones. And that included Daniel. Not only would they do that, but they would put them in a strict training program, at least for Daniel, for three years. His training program was this. They would learn the literature and the culture of that day. And then one other thing that they did, they changed their names. They changed their identities. They changed who even who they were. And, and the proof of that is we don't know the Jewish names of these guys, but we know the, the, the Babylonian names of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That's what they did. And Daniel was one of those guys, and Daniel had the opportunity or the gift, if you will, that's more accurate, the gift of understanding dreams. So Daniel chapter 2, he's living in exile. Second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign. And Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. And then he asks his sorcerers and magicians in, in Daniel chapter 2, he said, tell me about my dream and interpret the dream. And the people said, you're asking, if, if, you, if, if you're asking us this, then tell us your dream. And he said, no, 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 no. He said, you're stalling for time. You tell me your dream. He gave an impossible ask. And so when they pushed back on that, he said, that's it. If you're so smart, not in those languages, but if you are the magicians and the sorcerers and the people with supernatural wisdom and you don't know my dream, I'm going to kill you. And that included Daniel too. And so when the person came from an executive order to kill all the, all the wise men, Daniel used in the Bible, I think it's in verse 2, verse 18, 2, 14, he used wisdom and tact. He asked his friends, Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, he said, pray for wisdom. Pray for God to show us mercy. And that night, God showed Daniel what the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had. He said in verse 22, God reveals deep and hidden things and know what lies ahead in darkness and light dwells within him. So what happened? He interpreted the dream. He interpreted the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had of four great kingdoms that would come over a thousand years. And you might go, woohoo! Everyone lived happily ever after. But the most important point was this, what Daniel said. Daniel said this, In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to the end, but it will itself endure forever. Did Jesus say he was bringing a kingdom? Did he say, did Jesus put an expiration date on his kingdom? Did Jesus say, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it? Did Jesus say those words? Jesus said those words. The book of Daniel goes on in Daniel chapter 12. And it talks about not the end times, but the future that is near. And in Daniel chapter 12, verse 3, he says this, those who are wise... Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. That's your destiny. That's your calling. Even though things have changed, you shine for Christ. And the church will last. I mentioned this Cleveland pastor, Alistair Begg, 
in this article called Welcome to Exile. It's going to be okay. He tells this story. This is a great story. In the 1920s, Lord John Reith helped establish the BBC and served as his first general director. He was a somewhat severe man from the highlands of Scotland, and as BBC began to be carried by, along by the tide of secularism that swept through Britain in the 1960s, a young producer stood up in a meeting and said to Lord Reith that the world was changing and that the BBC did not continue with it, should not continue with its religious programs. People were no longer interested in religion and faith, and he said the church was becoming increasingly obstinate. Lord Reith was 6'6", six, six, and he told this man to take a seat. Then he stood up. Imagine a tall man like that. And he said, the church will stand at the grave of the BBC. And you know what? It will stand. It will stand when the BBC and the CNN and Fox dwindle and die. God's kingdom will stand when every organization and institution and empire meets its end. What has changed? Not God's sovereignty. Not God's rule. Not God's kingdom. That will never change. So what hasn't changed? Actually, it's really quite simple. Actions matter. As we think about people who do not yet know Christ, actions matter. Actions speak louder than words. The book of James is the focus, is focused on this. The major theme of the book of James is do not just be hearers of the word, be doers of the word. We've had two powerful funerals that I've been able to take in. Two ladies, Claire Shea and our friend Twyla Juliet, that went home to be with the Lord. In James chapter 2, verse 26, talks about those kind of funerals. A body that doesn't breathe is dead. When someone takes their last breath, they're gone, right? And James 2, 26 says, Already a body that doesn't breathe is dead, and in the same way, faith that does nothing is dead. My good friend, Greg Anderson, who's going to be here next month, from Inspiration Point Bible Camp, said to me years and years ago, he said to me, Kirk, Kirk, kids don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. I know that sounds corny, but our mission, our actions speak loud. They really do. And there is a watching world that is watching us. There's an old paraphrase called the J.B. Phillips translation, and it says this. I love this idea. The whole world is on tippy toes. Tippy toes. Waiting to see the wonderful sight of the children of God coming into their own. The world of creation cannot as yet see reality, not because it chooses to be blind, but because in God's purpose it has been so limited, and yet it has been given hope, and hope has a name. Hope has a nose. Hope has eyes. Hope has ears. His name is Jesus, and hope invades your heart as a follower of Christ. And he fills you with his spirit. Other translations use this word, eagerly, expectingly, or eagerly expecting. And the idea is this of a runner. When runners, sprinters, what do they do? They lean forward. 
They lean forward at the table. Have you seen that before in sprints? That's the word. That's the word. That's the word. Could there be something more? Who am I? Why am I here? All people have those questions, friends. So what hasn't changed? That need for hope. So here's the challenge that we have as we wrestle through this series and we say, Lord, what would you speak to me? What would you say to me? These are some questions. If you are a follower of Christ and you have no Christian friends, reset. If you're a follower of Christ and you only have Christian friends, refocus. Let me say that again. A follower of Christ with no Christian friends, reset. You need believers in your life. But if you're a follower of Christ and you only have Christian friends, refocus. Our purpose here on planet Earth is to be his salt and his light. Now, if I offended you, I am sorry about that. But I'd ask that you'd wrestle with that before the Lord. I'd ask that you just wrestle with that before the Lord. Lord, who is in my life? I, I've been wrestling with this question and getting ready for this message. Kirk, do you know your neighbors? Do you know your neighbors? And you say, yeah, I know my neighbors. Are you friends with your neighbors? Well, I wouldn't go that far. I mean, I don't want to be that person. So my final question is this, what could change? Friendship really matters. Friendship really matters. And, and, and go away with a phrase that, that Greg Finke, the author, uh, penned. I think it's a really great phrase. It's called agendaless friendship. Agendaless friendship. I know that's not a word, so if you're an English person and you're kind of going, deal with it. Agendaless friendship. You know what that's like and what it's not like. Greg tells about a story in his book, and I had that happen to me. I had someone come to the church I was serving, and they were brand new, and I was pretty excited. He was a sharp young guy. Let's call him Bob. That's not his name, but Bob invited me out for a meal. We went to Mr. Steak, and I thought, you're buying, I'm, buy I'm getting. So I got a big old steak. And I said, hey, it's great to have you in church. Thanks so much. Listen, the real reason I'm here is, could I get your church directory? I'm starting a business. And I felt used. Question for you. Did Jesus win everyone? All the people that Jesus came in touch with, did he win everybody? No. Some of you I'm seeing you shake your head. No. Here's some uh, Luke chapter 4 verse 14. He was rejected in Nazareth. In John chapter 6, he said some hard things in his, and, and there were many disciples that turned away. And this was the famous interaction Jesus had with, with Peter. And Peter said, Lord, where are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. In Matthew chapter 19, there was a rich young ruler who walked away because of his great wealth. And then Jesus even owns up to it or at least identifies it in, in Matthew chapter 11 and he compares himself to John. John came neither eating nor drinking and they say he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking and they say he's a glutton and a drunk of friend and a friend of tax collectors and sinners, but wisdom is proved right by her deeds. What's your point? My point is this. Not even Jesus won everybody. 
Not even Jesus. And he's Jesus. There were 12, there were 70, there were multitudes. What kind of person was Jesus like? When we put it together, we, we, we can see that he loved people. He liked to attend weddings. I don't think Cana was his only wedding. I'm not going to die on that hill, but that would make sense. He liked little kids. Didn't he? Yeah. And he used humor. That whole speck in your eye and plank in your eye thing, that's a play on fun words, really fun words. But he came for people, the sick and the dying and the needy, and he was friends. He was friends. A case study of that is Nicodemus. I didn't know this this week, and I kind of put this together. Greg helped in his book, and you can read more about it. But Nicodemus, we, we come across Nicodemus's life in three different sections in the book of John. John chapter 3 is the famous God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That was Nicodemus, this religious re- leader. But then in John chapter 7, John chapter 7, we pick up Nicodemus as well too. When there was unbelief about the Jewish leaders, it's on page 919 if you want to follow along, the temple guards went back to the chief priests and the Pharisees who asked them, why didn't you bring him in? No one else has spoken the way this man does. The guards replied, you mean he's deceived you too? Have any of you rulers or the Pharisees believed in him? No, but this mob that knows nothing and the law, there's curse on them. And then Nicodemus spoke up. That was him. He said this word, does the law condemn a man without hearing him to find out what he's been doing? Nicodemus stands up for Jesus. And then we pick up Nicodemus' life in John chapter 20. We know about Joseph of Arimathea who gave up his grave for our Lord and Savior. But the other person that came and helped him was Nicodemus. Now church history tells us nothing after what happened to Nicodemus. In fact, they call it the lost Nicodemus. I don't know if Nicodemus will be in heaven, but I know this, our Lord was his friend. So I want you to wrestle with this. Be a friend. Show grace where it's needed. Don't forget that doctrinal truth must be wedded together with God's covenant grace. I uh, think of a story. I drove by in our old neighborhood. Um, I drove by a, a party that was happening. I was coming back from church, a really important church meeting, I'm sure. I came across a party that was happening. I noticed it because they had country western music blaring. And I hate country western music. And they had tables out, and they had a keg of beer there. And they had the jukebox blaring. And they had the picnic tables out. And people were laughing and talking and listening and engaging back and forth. And I thought, wow, they know how to be friends. That looks like a safe place. So now what? What changes? Ponder this question. 
It's in the back side of your bulletin. It came from the author. It says this, in the United States, efficiency is measured over relationships. In the gospel, Jesus values relationships over efficiencies. Counterintuitive as it sounds, it seems inefficient. Investment in friendships leads to effective mission results in people's lives. Wrestle with this question. What would it be like if Jesus did mission our way, namely efficiency? But what would it look like if we lived Jesus' way, namely friendships? And finally this, my friend Tim, you, you touched on this this morning. This is great. Wrestle in prayer over Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. You may have people in your life and say, Pastor Kirk, I'm so concerned about this person. Go to Ephesians chapter 6 and wrestle with the four things that Paul lists out of praying for a person. Rulers, powers, principalities, and spiritual darkness. When Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, he used some powerful language. And I had a friend who, this was one of his favorite verses. Jesus says, I no longer call you servants. I call you friends. That changed the game. That the God of the universe would call people like you and I, friends. That's what we're sharing. Not because we have our acts together, but because we're forgiven people, we're redeemed people, and God is transforming us. Anytime we come to this meal, this is a public way of acknowledging I'm a forgiven sinner, and God is changing me. God is making me into the man or woman he wants me to be. So as we come before this table, I'd invite you to bow your head and close your eyes. There are some simple questions that we always ask when we come to the table. These are heart questions. Do you believe in the, in the promises found in the scriptures? Do you recognize Jesus' real presence here in this meal? Do you repent and turn from your sin? And then as far as possible with you, have you made peace with those in your life? Peace with those in our fellowship? Have you humbly gone to people and say, would you forgive me? Bow your heads and close your eyes and talk to your king. Oh, here, friends, these beautiful words, come to me all who are weary and burdened and I will give you rest. In this word, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your invitation. Thank you for this meal.